Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Andrea Simintov, and you are listening to Pull Up a Chair. Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Last week we did Pull Up a Chair, and I said, good evening, good evening. It didn't have quite the same ring. I think we just get used to things. And it was a fun, a fun little detour, a fun little segue in this uh, broadcasting journey. But uh, I'm a morning person. Ups at the crap of dawn to share the time with you. Let's have our romper room moment. We have people listening in today from the U.S. and Boketov Eretz Israel. a little overcast for us this morning. Canada is with us. Dominica. Dominica. Is that the Dominican Republic or Dominica? You let me know. Germany is with us this morning, as is Jamaica. And I was just saying, usually we have South Africa listening in. They may be or they may be experiencing load shedding. And if you love the show, can't get over the show, hanging out with your good friend Andrea in the morning, certainly check us out on podcast and share the link. And um, anything you want to comment on, anything you want to take issue with kindly in friendship, drop me a note, Andrea at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Love to get the notes. I actually got a note last night. Oh, excuse me. I'm, I have a sucking candy. I have like this cold, this chest thing that just will not go away. Got to know. Usually I get all these like very lofty letters, love the show, sharing some more Torah thoughts. And last night I got like a two sentence letter. Andrea, not all South Africans are so nice. It, it was something like that. I'm not reading it exactly. Uh, you think that all South Africans are nice. Not so. So, you know, what was I going to say? I said, okay, you know, yeah, it was kind of a generalization. So, as I say, if it's good for Peter, it's good for Paul. And I have to accept that. But I still think that South Africans are pretty darn nice. Not as nice as the Canadians, but definitely nice. Okay. So, here we are deep, deep into January, right? Oh, my gosh. Anybody still writing 2022 on their documents? Um. Had a wonderful week. Started off after Shabbos. I had a wonderful Shabbos last week, and I just can already taste Thursday. Oh, man, those of you who observe the Sabbath to whatever extent and have been doing it regularly already feel what we call the avak of Shabbat, the dust of Shabbos beginning to settle. Everything is winding down, winding down to getting the house to smell great. And then, of course, ultimately lighting those candles and bringing in that special, special piece. We might talk a little bit about media and how important it is to kind of keep it out of our Sabbath, um, our Sabbath uh, milieu. So I started off the week. I went to Ashkelon south on the ocean. And it is crazy. I mean, first of all, I don't really leave Jerusalem that much. I'm busy. And to be in the car and to drive, and I drove past farms, and I drove past mountains, and I drove through Yishuvim, little agricultural villages. And it was just so amazing. And we tend to be a little bit um, 
I guess those who live in Manhattan and never leave Manhattan kind of think the whole world is like Manhattan. Well, you know, you live in Jerusalem and you kind of get this Jerusalem sense of being. And Jerusalem is not Israel. I didn't really know that. Years ago, I remember saying to a friend, I visited Kfar Saba once. Lovely, lovely city of Kfar Saba. Very Israeli, very old, has a deep history. And I said this incredibly, this phenomenally stupid thing. I said to him, this friend, I said, so like, why do people live in Kfar Saba? This is like true confession. I'm in the confessional now. I said, why would people live in Kfar Saba? Is it because they can't, is it because they can't afford to live in Jerusalem? I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, I actually, I had to say it out loud to hear it. And he looked at me and he said, and you know, you may find this hard to believe, Andrea, but not everyone wants to live in Jerusalem. And I mean, I really thought that he was nuts. But you know what? <laughs> That's because that was convenient. Not everyone wants to live in Jerusalem. So I made it down to Ashkelon, to the water. I looked at the marina, past little shawarma and falafel stands, and people walking their dogs in nature. And there was something so calming, so beautiful, so nice. And I just... I made one of my quasi-commitments that I've got to get out of Jerusalem a little bit more. I want to share with you a story that happened to me this week. And even though it has to do with a death, it's not a sad story. It's an incredible story about an incredible outlook. This week, a dear friend passed on to heaven. I think I had mentioned during some of the other shows that I had been on shifts to sit with her. She had been diagnosed exactly a year ago with a very rare and deadly form of cancer. No, no hereditary factors uh, other than the standard, you know, keep your normal weight, don't smoke, don't drink, eat healthy. You know the rules. We all know on Google WebMD. Anyway, the most fascinating aspect of my friend Jackie's illness was that as a single mother and certainly as a pillar of our community, she used her illness as an opportunity to live out loud. She never wrote when she was down and nevertheless in simple language uh, chronicling, I think a lot of it was on Facebook, but she also, there was a WhatsApp group. She talked about the experience of having these treatments of joining in experimental studies of traveling to America at her doctor's, you know, with her doctor's blessing enjoying visits from friends. And, you know, when I visited her during a recent shift in her final weeks, what did she do? I mean, my expectation is I'd walk into a woe is me scene. You know, she was very clear. No, no, no. I bought this bed. This is the bed I want to be in. This is where I want to pass on from. This is the home I want to be in. And, you know, she shared some of the books that she was reading, was giving recommendations as usual, and we laughed like third graders over bodily functions and discussed whether or not it was worth getting a gel manicure that she might not be able to keep up, you know, those required fill-ins. And several times over the months of her illness, she said, I've lived an incredible life. Where did that statement rate on my uh, personal attention scale? About a three. It was white noise. Everybody says stuff like that. This past Tuesday night at her funeral, every speaker recalled 
her reference to this incredible life. And I revisited my benign reaction and realized that her life was incredible because her outlook was incredible. There were celebrations to be had, even in the smallest moments. That book she was reading, a plate of sushi, indeed, gel manicures, notes, and photographs from high school friends. I learned so much. Stringing together beads of life events in order to create a magnificent piece of jewelry called life. There was so much to be learned about being deliberate, present, attentive, invested, and childishly excited about everything from a plate of scrambled eggs to the setting of the sun. This doesn't mean there wasn't pain and loss and divorce and alienation. Sound familiar, boys and girls? But these aforementioned occurrences, you know, when aligned correctly, offer the spice and flavoring necessary to bring out the most delicious aspect of all that remains. No one leaves this world unscathed. The most delicious lives are not the ones that end on a note of, whoo, I offended no one. I made no impact, no waves. I never experienced hurt and I kept joy to a minimum. Tja, what a waste. The eccentric Mame Dennis says in the play, Anti-Mame, life is a banquet and most poor suckers are starving to death. You know, whether we're our own bosses or work for others, incredible experiences await for us as long as we are true to our words, own up to our flaws, know what is in our control, and keep clear, remain clear, remain cogent about that which lays beyond our grasp. The incredible life, it's not necessarily a life that's filled with travel and riches. Clearly, it has nothing to do with either being accepted or rejected by the royal family, if you've been following the news. The incredible life is filled with partnership with the one above and laced with gratitude, acceptance, and faith. I don't know about you, but it's very nice to be able to make those small commitments to an incredible life. And I wish that my friend Jackie rests in peace. And she went from being a friend to a teacher to so many. When we come back, we are going to speak a lot. I think today we're going to talk a lot about humility, what we can do to bring that richness into our life to um to, to, to strengthen our faith and all other super duper things. My name's Andrea. Guess what? I'll see you on the other side.
Israel. Okay, we are back. All right. Um, I'm sure if anyone else is listening. Hold on one second. I have to take a sip. Do we want to keep the show real or not? Hold on. And indeed, I said the bracha earlier, okay, in case any of you are saying amen. I am going to paraphrase right now, which I do more often than not. Uh, Somebody sent me a video. It was a short video, very short. A woman did this video. Obviously, a Torah observant woman did it at her kitchen table. I was admiring her cabinets as somebody who's thinking about redoing her kitchen. And she told a story and it's a story that I'd like to share with you. And um, listener tip. It's a story about humility, greatness, and faith, emuna. And I'm going to get all the cities, but it was a Midwestern city. And many of you listening may have indeed seen this video. And I'm happy to send it to you. If you drop me a note, I'd love to hear, uh, send it to you. This way I have to stay true or two. Anyway, this woman was telling a story that they were having some sort of a kinos, a, a, a conference in her city. It might have been Detroit, might have been, don't quote me, where various rabbeim were coming in to speak to the community. Um, and everybody was invited, and there were all kinds of events surrounded. There was the Friday night, uh, the, the 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 Friday night services, and then afterwards the Tish, a get-together, a, get an Oneg Shabbat, where they had coffee and tea and a lot. And um, then there was the next day, and there was Shul, and then there was a Malava Malka, a, a celebratory party at the end of the Sabbath. And one of the speakers was a a renowned rabbi from the Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem. And she does not mention the rabbi's name, and you'll soon understand why. And I think she said, she was very cute, she said she didn't remember his name, but if she did remember his name, she wouldn't say his name. Okay, little Jackie Mason thing going on there, clearly. So, and he was giving a talk, and it might have been at the Friday night service where one there weren't very many women there and yet a woman from the community a russian balat chuva a russian woman who was new to observant jewry who had not been observant when she lived in the former soviet union and became religious went to this rabbi and she said to him rabbi i just want you to know that my son is the first man in my family in 150 years to put on tefillin. Tefillin, for those who are not familiar, are the leather ritual straps. I believe they're called phylacteries in English that Jewish men put on each day, wrapping around their arms and a box on the head. It's a incumbent upon Jewish men to put on tefillin. And she said, Rabbi, in 150 years, my son is the first to put on tefillin. And this renowned rabbi from the, from the Mir Yeshiva said to this newly religious woman, Ma'am, would you please bless me that I should have your nachas because I have a son 
who does not put on tefillin. You know, we all have our parts to play. We all share in the greatness. As we're going to discuss today in today's Devar Torah, Torah portion, it doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter our family name, whether it be a lofty name or whether it be a low name. We all have our role to play and we all have the ability to bless and be blessed. And just because one is a rav doesn't mean that every all of his religious ducks are lined up in a row. And it doesn't mean because one may have lived deal a base life that there is not plenty of room for spirituality. And um, I just wanted to share that story with you. I absolutely love that story. Someone also wrote in a group, I'm going to be pursuing this more in future weeks. Someone wrote in a, in a spirituality group and was asked about a recommendation to this teacher in this group for uh, how to work on her spirituality. And I'd like to know what you think about this. I loved her answer, but again, that sort of is like manipulative. Her answer was, I think her name is Bracha. She said, hi, the best way to work on your spirituality is to work on your creativity, the creativity that is innate within you. When you figure out what you are built to do, to give, to contribute, what's your unique special spirituality right there? And the best part is that you can do something with it. You can be like Hashem, a giver, a creator, a joyful maker of wonder and newness. That's you. You can experience the bliss and magic of your spirituality every moment you are involved in exercising your unique form of creativity, whether that's painting or running a corporation or helping women give birth or writing poetry or doing standing up comedy, stand up comedy or anything else. I like that. I have my Shabbos assignment set up. I have to figure out what is my unique gift. All right. All right. Um, we do our woohoo moments here on Pull Up a Chair. I don't know if this is a woohoo moment or how embarrassed can I be moment. We will try to find out what you will say. According to the Times of Israel, and I digress a moment, I've heard the rumors for weeks already. <clears throat> Shabbos lunch. Did you hear? Did you hear? 7-Eleven is coming to Israel. What shall I say? That I turned green? So the title of this article in the Times of Israel is Israelis flock to taste iconic Slurpee as 7-Eleven opens first store in country. Do I have to do I have to promote fair journalism now? Do I have to pretend that this show is even remotely objective? I can, you know, I always said Israelis will grab whatever. What is the ugliest thing we can grab about America? 7-Eleven is not the ugliest, but it certainly is not another badge of elegance with which to uh, pepper our country. So store offers the self-service experiences promises to launch an app soon. Well, whoop-dee-doo. And they plan to open eight stores in Tel Aviv by the end of the year. I can't. Um, 
So this is very interesting because people who listen to this show are very interested in spirituality, of course. I mean, like, duh. So um, what did they say? They send a range of unique brand items. Of course, everything. I was trying to think because I've been to 7-Eleven. I go to America. Please, God, I'll be there over the Passover holiday again. And I stop off at 7-Eleven to pop in there. Not on Pesach, of course. But I'm saying, like, not everything they have is kosher. So here they have the same range. I was looking to see. They're going to have the, the Israeli snacks, ready-to-eat takeaway meals, and basic home supplies. But this is the interesting thing. They're going to have their famous hot dogs with buns, and they don't charge for sauces and toppings. I don't think I've ever had – well, I'm kosher, so I don't think I ever had a 7-Eleven hot dog. Customers are charged – $2 for soft serve ice cream or frozen yogurt. Now, the question is, um, is it not, it's not, they're open on Shabbos, okay? They're open on the Sabbath and uh, they do not have a kosher license and they decided that if in other locations will be, uh, they'll take into account everything. Is this a good thing, 7-Eleven in Israel? I really don't think so. I can't believe it. I never had a Slurpee and I'm not going to. All right. Quickly, before we go to our um, next break, somebody posted on Facebook recently. I'm just looking here. Yeah, something about that news is a product. And that when we look at the news, you know, there are people who say, I never read Haaretz. Oh, I never read Mariv. I have to tell you, I'm one of those people who I never read the Mariv newspaper because it aggravates me. It upsets me. Um, but... Does that make me a more honest journalist? I, you know, probably not. So the question was raised on a site, you know, what is the purpose of journalism? And it seems that the obvious goal would be to inform the public. But the reality is that news sources are competing with one another. They're for sale. They're competing for consumer attention. Uh, I guess that the more gossip you have recently, I think, I was flipping through a lot of the American papers and they were talking about the Golden Globe Awards. And I have to tell you, I'm not proud about this. I don't really know what the Golden Globes are. I know what the Oscars are. I know that this is something else. I know there's something called the People's Choice Awards. I don't know what it's about because it doesn't feed into my um, my purview and my lifestyle. And I was thinking about this recently because very often my husband comes home from work and I look at him and I say, is there anything happened in the news today that I need to know? And last night he said to me, did anything happen in the news today that I need to know? He's always the news. We were actually talking about a certain Israeli politician who was accused of uh, financial impropriety years ago and is um, seeking to retain a Knesset seat. But I don't digress. So the answer is, is news, I'm interested in what you think, is news a commodity? Is news a piece of material that we buy? Is news objective? And what can we do to make news um, less consumer attractive and more objective? I'm gonna give some thought to this. My name's Andrea Simintov. I'll see you on the other side.
Okay, we're back. Wow. Time flies when we are having fun. I'm just looking here. I'm having this ongoing battle with City Hall. You should know about it here. It's an ongoing battle. And I'm still smiling. You know, actually, I'm just going back. And I'm, this is our Devar Torah section. But I'm reminded um, I should take better notes. One of the reasons that I was speaking about this incredible life was a client. Um, I had two new clients this week. They actually came together, two two lady friends and wonderful from a new neighborhood here. And almost in unison, they said to me, wow, are you always so upbeat? You seem to have this really great outlook on life. And um, in my heart, I was saying guffaw, guffaw, because I don't always have this great outlook on life. And it was dawning on me at that moment that everyone has something. Everyone is struggling. You have no idea. Um, I think I remember recently I mentioned that I had gone for a, um, I'd gone for a certain exam and the technician was, she was horrible. I mean, she was really, she was very rough and all the women listening in know what I'm talking about. Just think about a garage door slamming. Um, she was very rough. And then she was, when I said, ow, oh, I, she complained. And I remember thinking to myself, I have no idea what's going on in her life. I have no idea what Nachis, great satisfaction, great joy she's getting from her children or not. I have no idea what is going on in her marriage, if there's a marriage or or not. We have no idea. Don't judge another man until you walk in his moccasins. And I realized that this not so newfound desire to put on a happy face to show gratitude, to understand that every breath in, every exhale is a gift from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is a gift from God, that it was working. That these two women said, are you always so upbeat? I was just thinking, I had just had quite a morning of aggravation that day. And I said, gee whiz, it does work. And all we have to do is apply it. So yeah, I am always that upbeat when I remember to, what was it? I once heard somebody say that when anger is present, God is absent. Yeah, take that into account. All right. Upbeat. Oh, we have listening in now. So excited. Thank you. Um, good morning. I'm not even going to try Spanish. Good morning, Mexico. Listening in. Romania is with us. And of course, thank you, my beloved South Africa is with us this morning. So this week's Torah portion is called Shemot, Shemot, and we're beginning the second book of the Torah by the same name, by the way. Now, Shemot begins with the Jewish people at a high level of accomplishment. We were big shots in Egypt, integration within Egyptian society. But as Rabbi Wine says, from this lofty perch of security and success in Egyptian society, we soon toppled. The situation changes dramatically for them, and they go from being accepted and even respected to positions of abject and cruel slavery. And if you think, gee whiz, it can't happen overnight. No, it can the Torah is accurate. The Torah is true. The Torah is a blueprint of what is, what was, and what will be. The slavery situation in Egypt, not temporary. Mm -mm. 
It's going to last for centuries. And eventually the Jewish people, though not certainly all of the Jewish people, or even a majority of them, are freed from Egyptian bondage by heaven's intervention. And they're forged into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Crazy, dressed in rags and threadbare sandals, we become elevated to a nation of priests. So it's this crazy ride from dizzying heights to these terrible lows, and then we climb up again. Here's a startling example of God's plan for Israel throughout all the ages and situations, regardless of where we end up. Take a moment. Think of your own situation, your own life uh, situation, things that you have seen in your lifetime and the lifetimes of your not-so-distant ancestors. The Jewish world? Seldom on an even keel. It's always been a series of ups and downs, a roller coaster, many times even in one lifetime, one generation. The past century? Well, can we get a better example of this pattern of Jewish history? It's a lucky person who lives their entire Jewish life up on top. But even that person cannot guarantee to his children and grandchildren that the good times are permanent, that they're even long lasting. Life goes just as we're changing our checks, just as the calendar pages flip, flip, flip. The only thing certain about Jewish life is uncertainty. And even though we might wish for a greater stability in matters, we'd like to say this is the way it is. It don't work like that. We have to accept this divine mandate um, of change and uncertainty. Remember, I think it was last week's Parsha, two weeks ago, where Yosef, Joseph is in prison and he's going to be in prison forever. I don't even think there was a, a end game to his imprisonment for the episode with Potiphar's wife. And suddenly, in a second, he's told, wash up, don this clothing, you are free, Paro wants you. Moshe's appearance in the Parsha, in the Torah portion this week, is just another example of this crazy carnival ride, the up and down situation of Jewish life. How does he begin his life? In the crocodile infested waters of the Nile. Then he's miraculously delivered from the fate of certain death, raised as a prince in the house of Paro, no less. He knows royalty. He knows how to ring that bell. He knows He knows a life of wealth and riches. And yet, with clarity, deliberately, he forfeits his position in an attempt, in an exercise of finding compassion for his Jewish brothers. He becomes a hunted man. He escapes Egypt. What happens? He comes to Midian, and there he marries and becomes a shepherd, tending the flocks of his father-in-law. You know, there's no natural way that he can reclaim his role as a prince and a leader. He's done. He served notice. 
This is where I am. This is where I'll be. But you know, the incident of the burning bush, even as he is tending his sheep, it pulls him away and it sends him on the world changing mission to redeem and educate the Jewish people. And through him, indeed, all of humankind. Moshe rises to the highest level of human leadership. He is the ultimate teacher. He is our prophet. He is our seer. While all the time he remains flawed and human. Moshe Rabbeinu becomes the measuring rod, the symbol represented by his powerful staff of all future Jewish leadership and spirituality. But Moshe, just like Israel, first has to be plunged into the depths of persecution and poverty before being raised to greatness. So let's step back a second. Just watching the clock here. We're good. As we begin this book, we've completed the development of the forefathers, the Avot, and of B'nai Yaakov, the children of Jacob. Now what's happening? The Torah poignantly turns to the development of B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, beginning with the birth, Moses' birth, as his initial involvement as a leader and a prophet, or what we call a Navi. What made him so great that he's going to become the greatest prophet of Israel? Is it because he came from the house of Paro? Why was he worthy to lead us out of Mitzrayim, out of Egypt, into the Midbar, the desert, for 40 years? To have us stand together at the foot of Sinai and to receive the Torah. The Torah doesn't expand on his early life. It did on the early life of Avraham, of Yitzchak, of Yaakov. The Torah doesn't elaborate on Moshe's genealogy, except for stating he was a descendant from the house of Levi. That's about it, boys and girls. But what little Torah relates about his early life helps us to understand his personality and character as a young man and why he was worthy of prophecy and leadership. This is crazy because, you know, we think of the story and it must go on and on. But it's only in the space of seven pesukim, seven sentences, that the Torah relates three incidents in which Moshe championed the cause of justice. Pay attention. I really enjoyed learning this. In the first case, an Egyptian taskmaster... You know, remember the pictures of him sort of with that little half skirt and the whip? We all read those children's books. The taskmaster, he's beating a Jew. So what happens? Moshe comes to his aid. Second incident. Two Jews are fighting and he comes to the aid of the weaker one. In the third incident, involving non-Jews, one moment. I am so devoted. I actually swallowed a throat lozenge in a very unfortunate manner. And I was trying not to like collapse in this. Okay. So in the third incident involving non-Jews, non-Jews, what's in his business? Yitro's daughters, the daughters of Yitro or Jethro 
are saved from the shepherds by Moshe, even though he is fleeing for his life because of his previous actions. Nechama Leibovitch, um, the beloved teacher in her studies in Shemot, she points out that these incidents combine to prove the metal of the personality involved. In the first incident, perhaps he's motivated by feelings for his own people and their oppression. Okay, we get it. As Rashi explains, he saw their hard labor and he felt it and he shared their distress. Now, of course, the second incident also makes sense. Perhaps he was revolted by the infighting among Jews. Pretty revolting, I would agree. And what has come to be known as sinas chinam, uh, blind hatred. One interpretation of, let me try to get the Hebrew right, the matter has become known. It's brought by Rashi in the name of the Midrash that Moshe wondered why the Jews were singled out among the 70 nations to suffer such hardship and slaveries. Now that he witnessed that they slander each other, they resort to character assassination, they inform on each other, he understood they almost deserve their punishment. Or perhaps Moshe was motivated in the first two incidents by the possibility of gratitude and reward from his brothers. I guess it's a way of kind of making it a little baser. And yet, it's after the third incident, which involves no Jew, which takes place far away from his brothers, where he's fleeing for his life from Paro, where perhaps he should be maintaining a little bit of a lower profile. Nevertheless, he defends the weak, and we recognize that his motivation is based on a pure lack of selfishness and pure justice. The Torah writes, in those days Moshe grew up, he went out to his brothers and saw their hard labor. The Ramban, okay, that's with the nun at the end, the end. The Ramban explains that he now grew up in maturity. And um, having found out, discovering quite late in life that he was a Jew, he went out among them to see their suffering. He could not bear to see them enslaved. This is why he killed the Egyptian who was striking the Jew. Rabbi Yehuda Nechshoni gives us a, a, a kind of a deeper insight into Moshe's personality. He expands on both what the Ibn Ezra and the Abarbanel say, because they tell us that Moshe grew up in the palace of Paro. Only by growing up in a royal palace could Moshe learn the elements of leadership and monarchy in order to develop the necessary self-confidence, the courage, the spiritual greatness necessary to lead B'nai Yisrael. Rav Samson Raphael Hirsch, whom I so frequently quote, he explains that prophecy requires a certain inherent characteristics the prophet must be strong. He must be wise. He has to be independent. Cannot be in the behest of anyone else. Rabbi Hirsch says, <coughs> forgive me, and I quote, only in a healthy, unweakened body does the mind attain that clarity that can draw from the well of Torah, that wisdom and the self-confidence and independence. End quote. The Midrash further develops um, this character discussion by relating that although he grew up in the royal palace, 
and became second in command, he did become self-indulgent. He didn't become vain. Instead, what did he do? He went out every day to see his brothers and sisters. He joined them in their backbreaking work. He interceded with Paro by suggesting whether it was clever or, or whether it was um, trying to be like a, a business mind, a clever mind, or divinely inspired, that they could increase the efficiency of the slaves by allowing them rest one day a week. And Paro agrees. And Moshe offers the Jews to rest every single Shabbat. Before Moshe could merit speaking to God from the burning bush and indeed show that he's worthy of this leadership and prophecy, he had to demonstrate, how can I say this, um, additional, yeah, additional character traits of honesty, spirituality, compassion, patience. The Torah begins the story of the burning bush by telling us that Moshe became a shepherd for his father-in-law, Yitro. Consequently, he follows the example set by the Avot, the forefathers, all of whom were shepherds. And as a prerequisite to become the shepherd of Israel, Rashi explains the phrase, um, he led the here. He led the flock to distance himself from dishonesty, so as not to graze on grass from another's field. He went to pasture beyond the desert, which had no owner. The Sforno tells us that Moshe went alone to commune, to pray, and the midrash goes on to relate a famous story of the kid, the, the little goat, the baby goat that ran away from the flock to drink from the cool stream. What happens? Moshe hadn't realized that the kid was so thirsty, but he knew that it was exhausted from running. With that, Moshe put the baby lamb on his shoulders and he carried it back to the flock. Being a shepherd teaches great patience. The Yalkut Mi Amlo as explains taking pity on a small animal with no one watching. It's a sign of great patience. Huh. Indeed, to lead a people. One must have patience to endure their burdens, to treat every person as an individual, and to pray for the people when they do wrong. Moshe Rabbeinu, he exhibited these characteristics before he could merit before he deserved, before he could take on the clock of being a prophet and a leader. Perhaps we can learn a lesson from Moshe for our own leaders as prerequisites necessary for leadership. In this last segment of today's show, I'd love to tell you, as I say, we call this from the Torah to your table. And this is what Ronnie and I will be discussing from our Shabbos table. And inv I invite you to talk about the same stuff. I indeed would love to know your take on it. There's a thing in Judaism called yichus. Yichus refers to a distinguished and a righteous pedigree. Okay, it's very big in the dating and teaching world. Well, you know, what's his yichus? Oh, he comes from big rabbis. He comes from this, he comes from that. The Dayan Moshe Swift, in his Sefer, in his book, Moreshet Moshe, states, the Yichus, the pedigree of Moshe, 
is not even recorded. Who cares who his father was at a time of life and death? Indeed, at a time of life and death, every son and daughter of Israel must rise to the occasion and assume the height of responsibility. The son of a Schneider, a tailor, or the son of a rabbi. Israel's greatest teacher emerges from the home of an everyday Jewish mother or father. I invite all of you listening in today to discuss this statement that every Jewish son and daughter must always be prepared to rise to the highest level of responsibility based on his or her own efforts and not rely on a family name. Shabbat Shalom from Jerusalem. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 